1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture, medicine, and conservation with an emphasis on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton. I'm a professor. I'm a podcast host, keynote speaker, and today we're going to talk about the conspiracy that happens between a number of genomes to make a product many people enjoy. Where does wine come from? And the quality of wine is dependent not just on grapes, but on the interaction of grapes and a variety of microorganisms. And we'll learn all about that today. But before we get into that, we have a co-host today. And our co-host is Emily Hale. Hello, Emily.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, this is really cool. I always like to do this. Now, you're a student in my molecular biology class.
2: Yes, I am.
1: (laughs) And uh, you have an interest in... uh, in what? what's your long-term goal in science?
2: Yeah, so my major is biology, and but my emphasis is biotechnology, and I'm super into plant molecular biology and trying to get into the agricultural industry and seeing how different plant molecular biology methods can impact sustainability and efficiency in different ag fields.
1: Yeah, cool. So we're, we're kind of in the same area. And what was some of your interest in the idea of, so, th- you know, truth be told, the idea to do this about wine was really an idea that came from you. And so what's your, what is the interest in the uh, micro-molecular biology of wine?
2: Yeah. So my parents kind of started me on the wine industry young, of course, not drinking it, but took me to a lot of wineries when I was little. And I just started to think a lot more about it and how the different disciplines like biochem, micro and molecular biology, crop production, all different things that I'm interested in, how all those kind of work together to create this super desirable product. And also it has such a rich scientific history, which I'm also really interested in. so.
1: That's a good answer. And, you know, the United States is the only place where it's weird, weird about kids and wine. I mean, when I was in uh, Italy a couple of years ago, giving uh, I was actually teaching a class there, um, they had a wine, not a vending machine, but like a fountain with the Diet Coke and the Pepsi, you could get a glass of red wine. So it's, uh, you know, and the students were up there drinking wine at their lunch break. It, it's not, a, you know, as, as uh, stigmatized as it is here. So, but that's interesting that you noted that. And of course, the history and uh, kind of, as I mentioned before, this um, dependence upon multiple genomes, whether it's the grapes or the rootstock or the yeast and other critters that, that make it. It's a really good mixture. So where, how far along are you in your studies?
2: I'm a junior right now, so I still have a little bit of time left in my undergrad. Um, and I'm planning on going to grad school to study biotech or play molecular biology. Not super sure yet, but yeah, that's the, that's the game plan right now.
3: We're
1: joined by Professor Saki Pretorius. He's the Deputy Vice Chancellor for Research at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. So welcome to the podcast, Pref- Professor Pretorius.
3: Thank you very much, Kevin.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate you joining us. Um, We're here with Emily Hale, who's a student in my molecular biology class. Emily is very interested in the molecular biology and the microbiology of wine. Let's start with the easy question. I was talking with Emily a little bit before you joined us about this kind of molecular biochemical conspiracy that's happening between grapes and microorganisms. And so when we're talking about wine, how many different organisms and how many different genomes are involved in producing this magical product?
3: There are basically three uh, organisms participating. The one is the grape, the second one, yeast, and the third one, in the case of red wine, uh, malolactic bacteria. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of genomes participating during the winemaking process. Uh, but it, those genomes basically come from those three organisms the one from Vitis vinifera, the grape, the noble variety, then the rootstock, other species from Vitis, and then Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the main yeast. But there are also non-saccharomyces yeast that contribute to the end product. And then in the case of red wine and sometimes a few Chardonnays, malolactic bacteria, the main one being Unococcus uni.
1: And the malolactic bacteria, just for those who, is that the one that converts malic acid to lactic acid so that it has a different mouthfeel?
3: Yes, um, that's correct. Uh, Malolactic bacteria converts a sharper tasting malic acid to a softer tasting lactic acid and it's not only the taste that it affects it's also stabilizing the yeast uh, the, the wine the reason being if you have malic acid left over in the finished wine and there are bacteria cells involved they will eventually convert it to lactic acid produce co2 or gas and bottles might explode. And it's for that reason, in red wine, it is mandatory to go through a secondary uh, fermentation, which is called malolactic fermentation.
2: So you mentioned the importance of the yeast that performs the fermentation, which is a super important step in winemaking. But are there really differences based on the yeast that does the fermentation?
3: Yes, um, that's the short answer to the question since the 1960s when the first commercial um, yeast strain was used to inoculate fermentation back in California, uh, the initial thinking was that it's just there in order to catalyze the conversion of grape must into wine. But over time, and especially the late 1990s and the early 2000s, it became very clear that within the species of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, there are thousands of strains and each of them can either uh, contribute uh, to the performance of the fermentation, but also sometimes the the flavor, especially releasing volatile compounds from involatile uh, grape-derived compounds.
2: That's really interesting. So the Saccharomyces cerevisiae yeast is the, as I understand, the yeast that's added for the fermentation step. But how does like naturally occurring yeast, does that differ in different parts of the world or are specific wine grapes always fermented with specific traditional strains? So how does how does that work?
3: Yes, um, the if you have naturally f- or spontaneously fermenting grape must, many yeast will participate in that. Um, up to a point where the alcohol levels reaches um, or reach about two or three percent, then some of them will just become uh, metabolically inactive or sometimes die. And as it goes up to five, six percent the only yeast that can really su- survive under those conditions at the low ph is saccharomyces cerevisiae but within saccharomyces cerevisiae there are very different strains some of them will for example release volatile thiols from grape must uh, like sauvignon blanc and make them more tropical in fruit flavors so other species are very um, well known or strains of Saccharomyces cerevisiae are very well known to release esters or even monoterpenes.
1: Yeah, I guess that's my big question then, because I studied the occurrence in the genes that control volatiles inside things like strawberries. So in a glass of wine, how much of the volatile content that contributes to flavor is coming from the grapes versus how much is coming from the yeast?
3: In total, there are And that's an estimate between 1,500 and 2,000 volatile compounds in wine, depending on the grape variety. In our experience, if I just focus on the thiols again, that is very typical of Sauvignon Blanc, um, we were able to increase the levels by using a specific yeast by 20-fold. So I would say... The backbone of a wine comes from the grapes. But the venous character of wine comes from yeast. And that is those are normally the volatiles. And they the volatile compounds include things such as esters, carbonyls, uh, terpenes, etc. So we should never underestimate that. The grape variety provides the backbone of, of, of a wine, but you you can have icing on the cake by using the right yeast in combination with a specific grape variety.
2: The general population of wine consumers might be more familiar with the different flavor compounds that come from the grapes but is there any like well-known flavor that comes specifically from the yeast that most people would think comes from the grapes?
3: Everything at the end comes from the, the raw material, the grape itself and um, the grape variety. If you think about uh, Sauvignon Blanc again, just because it's the easiest, uh, we know that sometimes if it's, The volatiles or the thiols can provide a grassy flavor or a tropical flavor or in some cases a sweaty flavor. But most of those compounds are cystenylated, they are bound by other sulfur molecules and you can't smell them, you can't taste them. So you need the yeast to unlock it, so during fermentation the yeast will release certain enzymes those enzymes will convert the, the bound in volatile compounds and make them volatile so that one can um, smell them and con- and that would contribute to the aroma. However, um, not every yeast can do it on its own. Sometimes you need a combination of different strains in, in order to provide um, that release. In Sauvignon Blanc, again, you... Um, you often need a first a releaser that will release it from the bound form and then a converter that will convert what was released uh, by the first strain to convert it into a potent aromatic um, compound. And that's very typical of Sauvignon Blanc. But in essence, one should also understand we know quite a bit about white wine. Uh, but we know very little about red wine. Red wine, apart from methoxypyrocenes that gives you the green bean or tomato leaf flavors, um, and rotundin, which provides the spicy, peppery character in certain grape varieties, uh, there's very little that we can link. We don't know what compound makes a Pinot Noir taste like a Pinot Noir or what compound makes a Shiraz taste tastes like a Shiraz. The matrix in red wine is so complex that it's very difficult to distinguish between those. So even if you take the yeast away, there's so much more that we need to understand when it comes to the grape must itself, or the grape juice itself, before it even gets into contact with yeast.
1: That's really fascinating because it's so complex in producing the flavors that we recognize. But as a scientist, I'm always thinking about how do we make this better? And are there efforts to breed yeast just like we would breed you know, dogs or grapes or anything else?
3: You know, since the 1980s, uh, people started to do exactly that. So with Saccharomyces cerevisiae, there are two genders. We call them A and alpha, and you can sporulate them, and then you can breed them. So I have to emphasize, these are not genetically modified. This is standard stock genetic breeding. And we can crisscross these strains to a point where we have strains that would provide uh, whatever we need. For example, um, a very well-known hybrid yeast that was done in this way is called Vin13. 13. Vin13 13 is a very, very strong fermenter. That's criteria n- number one that you need from a yeast. Ferment as quickly as possible. The second thing was for that yeast then to provide or, or contribute to the ester profile or to the volatile profile uh, in a positive way of the end product.
1: Now, that sounds really good. I, I, you would think that they also have to survive at a certain pH and in a certain alcohol environment, Yes, so environment, if, you, right? like if you think a about these
3: uh, strain development programs by classical methods like uh, crossing them and breeding them, you need basically a few things. One, strong ferment- fermentation performance, strong resilience. In other words, tolerance to high alcohol levels. If you have a hot season and you have uh, very high levels of sugar in your grapes, your ethanol levels or alcohol levels in your wine tend to go above 14 and sometimes even 15%. So in those environments, you need a heat that's tough that can survive um, conditions like that. You need a heat that can survive those ethanol concentrations under extreme uh, low pH, you know, normally it's below pH 3.5. Anything between 3.2 and 3.5. Um, the third thing that you're looking for is, of course, um, can your yeast that you breed can it provide or contribute positively to the sensory um, experience that the consumer will will have when they open a bottle of wine? So those are, and then. There's a, a last one, but it's still a very ill understood one. If your hees can also outcompete other microbial organisms, especially spoilage microbes, by um, not only by producing alcohol as quickly as possible, or taking the oxygen out and you know convert it into fermentative anaerobic conditions, but sometimes yeast uh, can provide um, can produce compounds that will kill uh, competing microbes, and if you c- can find a heath that actually outcompetes and kills off spoilage, either bacteria or other yeast then you have uh, uh, that's a, that's that's another boon to what one can uh, achieve with breeding programs.
1: The complexity of all of this really amazes me. And we'll dive more into this on the other side of the break. We're speaking with Professor Saki Pretorius. He's the Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. And we're joined by Emily Hale, who's a student in one of my classes. We're talking about the Venn diagram that exists between grapes, microorganisms, and consumers. And we'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment.
4: There's a lot of talk about academic freedom, especially at one institution. Academic freedom is a promise that allows scholars to pursue research, teaching, and outreach in their area of expertise, immune from censorship or retaliation. In the case of the Talking Biotech podcast, some have interpreted this to mean that this podcast shall experience freedom, from academic ties. Universities should be applauding the use of modern platforms to disseminate scientific knowledge in addition to the egghead journals and traditional media. However, this demonic vector of information was deemed unfit for the university outreach from which it came. In November of 2019, it was ordered to be shut down, forever. Other universities have offered to host and promote this popular outreach vehicle as their own, so we're grateful that some acknowledge the value of this podcast as an important conduit of science communications. However, it just didn't seem right to run to another institution to work an outreach around because we were not getting sufficient extension at home. So, as of early 2020, this podcast became an entirely independent, self-sustaining entity. Today, this podcast comes to you because it is performed as, in quotes, outside work. Every July, Fulta files paperwork to be allowed to create this dangerous vehicle on its own time his own dime. With a little love for those of you on Patreon, it's easy to see why this would not be welcome under a university banner, with such controversial topics as olive breeding, women in stem, virus resistant cassava, and new ways to produce insulin. <laughs> So please remember that this podcast is not a product of the University of Florida and does not reflect the views of its faculty, staff, or students. But it is science, so it probably does. But we can't say it does, so it doesn't. It reflects the personal feelings of Dr. Kevin Folta, who believes that academic freedom shall not be infringed. Unless threatened with disciplinary action. Or termination. And now back to the independent Talking Biotech Podcast.
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Professor Saki Pretorius. He's a Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, and the author of decades of Excellent research on the fundamental flavor components of wine and how it gets to be what it is based upon the emerging of what's happening from the sensory products in, or in the grape itself, as well as the organisms that ferment it and, and it adjust the metabolites inside. And then again, and how, com- how consumers react to that. So on the first half of the podcast, we talked about, you know, where, what are the flavor notes in wine and how much does the yeast contribute to that? But it seems to me that there's room for potentially for improvement and that there may be ways to use biotechnology in in this process, but it seems like the world is very much traditional with respect to grapes and the varieties of grapes. How do you think they're going to feel towards transgenic grapes? And is there any interest in the industry towards using biotechnology?
3: I think I can start by saying that uh, one should always uh, strive for more information and uh, a deeper understanding of whatever you are working with, especially in agriculture. Uh, It leads me to think of the old mantra of saying the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. We've been making wine for 7,000 years. So people may think, so what can you find out more? Well, if you compare wine that is being produced today versus wine that was produced, um, let's say, 200 years ago in the time of Louis Pasteur, uh, the wines today, uh, in terms of quality, is by far more superior. They don't contain the, the same level of faults, microbial or otherwise, uh, it's, um, it's a safer product. Uh, so there's always room for improvement. So when I come to biotechnology, one has to be very, very uh, aware that wine is a unique product in the sense of its strong uh, traditions, um, its strong socio-cultural connotations, and one should never try and use technology to, in a disrespectful way. So you have to respect the past. You have to lead the present in order to secure the future. How do you do that? It's to take you back everything that we do today that we regard as a tradition. At one point in time, that was an innovation. Whether that was you know, the first time that grapes were or grape vines were um, put onto rootstocks to be phylloxera resistant, that was a massive invasion uh, innovation that um, that saved the wine industry worldwide. So, if you told people a hundred years before that that that's you'll take noble grape varieties and put them on North American non-noble variety, rootstocks, people would have um, be very afraid to do that. So one has to be careful. It's a debate. You, ha- you have to be absolutely transparent in what you're doing. But in my opinion, there's a lot that we can learn and that we've already learned since the 1980s and 1990s. We've seen an enormous improvement of our understanding when, for example, we sequenced the first genome of a grape uh, variety that was done uh, by a consortium in france and italy uh, and later on by other people as well the first uh, wine yeast uh, genome was sequenced in 2008 and just by doing that we can identify which genes code for what enzymes and what do what are the combinations for example in yeast Uh, that we would need in order to uh, optimize the flavor uh, coming from Sauvignon Blanc or from Shiraz uh, just through classical breeding. This doesn't mean you are using the transgenic yeast in commercial wine production but by learning it through your GMO study model you can then implement things in a non-GMO fashion. There is an appetite for transgenic uh, grapevine Uh, for example if you can find grapes uh, noble varieties that are resistant to uh, certain diseases that will be a huge benefit because then one doesn't have to use chemical pesticides in your vineyards if we can get to that point uh, either by creating a transgenic grapevine studying it and then try through non-gmo A classical genetic breeding to get to similar outcomes, that will be a big, big benefit to the global wine industry and may I add also to the environment.
2: Sure, there are traits that help producers in the commercial area, but what about traits that target the consumer like sensory sensory related traits?
3: There are many of them. Um, So again, if you improve the fermentation performance, that largely would be for the benefit of the, of the producer. If you improve the aroma or flavor compounds, that would be a benefit largely for the consumer. Uh, however, there are also non-sensory uh, improvements. For example, if one can avoid the use of bacteria in the secondary malolactic fermentation in winemaking and avoid the risk of having bioamines, being produced by the bacteria, bioamines being histamines, for example, and sometimes leading to headaches and sometimes in severe cases, minority of cases, of course, um, to allergies. But if you can avoid those sort of things, that will be a huge benefit to the the consumer. And we've already seen uh, examples of that where we can improve fermentation performance for the producer, but at the same time, we can improve the sensory profile of wines and target it more for consumers in selected uh, markets. Again, so far, we haven't used much of um, these strains for commercial winemaking, but more for study models so that we can try and achieve the same outcomes with non-GMO technology. The issue there is you never get to the same level of success with the non-GM technologies. Uh, So that that sort of stalls the progress of uh, the application of the technology.
1: Well, I know that there were, at least in the research area, a lot of grapevines that have been engineered to resist disease, which I just think is fantastic, that there's a was a xylella-resistant rootstock that could uh, live through Pierce's disease, which would greatly expand where we could grow grapes for wine, which would be really great. But I have heard that there was actually wine made with a genetically engineered yeast strain. So is this the kind of thing that is out there and maybe in major production, or is it kind of forbidden by the industry?
3: The first uh, commercialized, uh, genetically modified wine yeast was uh, released in 2005 and the second one in 2006. Uh, the, The first yeast was uh, engineered to convert malic acid into lactic acid itself. So that, so that yeast would conduct the alcoholic fermentation as well as the malolactic fermentation and the reliance on bacteria would not be there. Uh, that was commercialized and um, cleared all of the hurdles of the FDA in the U.S., and Health Canada and um, Environment Canada. And they were they were acceptable in wine production in the US and in Canada and in Moldova. But the widespread use of these yeast really didn't take off just because the winemakers were fearful of a backlash from consumers and then harm their markets. So although they're there, they've been tested, they've been cleared uh, by these uh, regulatory bodies, they haven't really been used widespread. One should really go to the manufacturers of those um, GM strains in order to find out whether you know how much that they sell my i suspect not much uh and if it was used it was probably done on an experimental basis rather than you know large-scale commercial wine making it would be very difficult for a large wine producer to go to a market and say this is a fantastic wine just taste it but you also have to be aware that um it was produced by a GM yeast uh, strain that I think will, will not sit well with many consumers in most of the export markets.
2: I think that's really interesting. And are there any efforts in synthetic biology to re-engineer yeast or bacteria to make wine better, more efficiently? And how would that sit with the consumer of wine?
3: There are efforts, um, but again, it's more for gaining more insights into what makes a wine yeast tick. In my own group and the group in Adelaide, uh, we have uh, come up with a semi-synthetic yeast. So that means some of the genes that um, produce enzymes in a specific metabolic pathway Uh, were introduced so synthetic DNA was introduced into that wine yeast and as a demonstration project rather as aiming at commercializing it we could show that you can make any white or red grape must uh, and convert that into wine that tastes like raspberries. So the metabolic pathway that we provided the synthetic DNA for, was to produce raspberry ketones, and ketones are those things that make raspberries taste like raspberry. So that was just to show um, that this technology can come in and potentially uh, can disrupt um, the way we think about winemaking. We've done that largely to... Uh, make our stakeholders aware of synthetic biology. This was done a few years ago. Uh, in 2016, it was published. Uh, just to say, you just taste or smell this wine if you want. If you don't want to taste it, just smell it. Uh, and you can smell raspberries from, for example, Chardonnay grape must, or Chardonnay wine, or Shiraz, whatever the grape variety you. Was, um, we were able to make it taste and smell like raspberries. Again, the intention there was never to commercialize it, it was more to demonstrate that this is a technology that we have to be aware of. Uh, If you're aware of things, you can prepare for the future so that we are not, we can expect the unexpected thing.
1: No, that's a really good point. I know I was at the facility in Adelaide. They have an outstanding uh, grape wine processing facility there and really impressive. But I think the big question is always with wine, that wine seems to have very little, that wine seems to be graded and rated based upon how well it conforms to expectations. And there's not a lot of latitude. It seems like the wine drinker wants a specific kind of wine. So do you think that that's going to be true going forward? Or do you think that the wine industries and maybe the new ability to create new flavors and aromas and breed new grapes or maybe use genetic engineering, do you think it'll, it'll broaden the horizon of what a wine consumer might find exciting?
3: If I have to give uh, an answer to that one, uh, I would say we will not see it in the near future because there's so much misinformation and ongoing misinformation about uh, genetics and the use of genetic tools in order to make a product more appealing to a consumer or to make it even more safer, not only more flavorsome. Um, And I think... It's very hard if you have to explain and reason on the basis of scientific facts and the other side uh, is using emotional language and inflammatory statements. Um, so my gut feel is that it will be a long while before we see a widespread um, em- embracing by consumers of this um. Of this technology, but in the meantime, this technology uh, is so important for us to use in the laboratories in order to gain more information regarding, um, you know, under what conditions will grapevines grow. For example, if the if if climate change is going to change the the places where we can grow grapes, uh, you know, if if there are existential issues, such as what we've seen in the late 1800s when phylloxera came. Nobody before phylloxera ever dreamt of we will be using rootstocks for noble varieties. Um, but if a big threat like that comes, then you know you can fall back on the technology and it can help you. So we as scientists just has to continue Um, the scientific endeavors in order to gain more information. If I can relate it to the current COVID pandemic, the fact that uh, the world was able to produce and clear uh, mRNA uh, vaccines within a year of the outbreak, uh, it looked like an overnight success, but we all know Overnight successes is always preceded by a long story and years and years of hard work and dedication. The COVID vaccine was really based on five decades of work. It, it appears to be overnight, but it's not. And <clears throat> for that reason, I'm saying we just have to continue the scientific endeavor and to gain more and more insight so that when we need it, we can use it. But the short answer to your question is really, I don't think we will see transgenic grapevines or the use of transgenic yeast or synthetic yeast cells to produce commercial wine at a large scale, perhaps in some boutique environments. It's a little bit like the, the brewing industry or the beer industry, where they can make beer more hoppy without using hops. Um there may be niche markets, but I can't see that that will be a widespread uh, thing that the consumers will embrace.
2: As someone who is an expert in this field, what would be your advice to someone like me, who's just now getting into it and just about to graduate from college and really interested in the field of wine genomics?
3: So, Emily, that's a good question. Um, how do you keep... Um, young minds, bright minds involved in a science that you can't see an immediate application because there are emotional barriers to the acceptance of that technology. My advice is you never know what happens. You never know when we're going we're to need the knowledge. My advice would be keep studying, keep doing your science, keep delving deeper and deeper into the guts of a yeast cell or a grapevine in order to understand the metabolic interactions, to understand uh, what happens in certain terroirs, to understand, can we come up with a synthetic uh, terroir, uh, just as a study model, where we have, let's say, a community of synthetic yeast of different species that are synthetic. And how do they interact with one another? If we understand that, we can use that as models to understand what's happening in the natural environments in vineyards or in spontaneous fermentations. If we use these as models, it's very important for us to science will always be ahead of applications because it's like, you know, snowflakes. Surely, you know, they stack on one another. And before you know, there's an avalanche when you need it, like what we've seen with the pandemic.
2: Dr. Pretorius, what do you think are some of the new up-and-coming frontiers in wine yeast
3: research? I can think of um, at least four or five new frontiers. Some of them are underway. Some of them are really futuristic. The first one would be, Can we synthesize the whole genome of Saccharomyces cerevisiae? That's well developed and we will probably have that synthetic laboratory strain uh, during the course of next year. That was a consortium that worked in five countries. But can we come up with a synthetic wine yeast genome of Saccharomyces cerevisiae? And if we can do that in future, can we come up with synthetic genomes of non-saccharomyces yeasts that we normally find in vineyards? So, frontier number one would be synthetic genomes of saccharomyces and non-saccharomyces yeast strains. The second one would be: can we come up with an extra? new chromosome, spelled like N-E-O. So a, synthet- a totally 17th chromosome that will add to the 16 natural chromosomes, a 17th chromosome that is pangenomic. So if I take a wine yeast and I have its full genome sequence, can I, can I harvest genes, the information of genes, in all other strains, whether they're brewing strains or baking strains or biofuel strains, and put that all of the beneficial genes onto a totally man-made new chromosome and add it to that. That work is also well underway. That will be possible. We will be crossing that frontiers within the next two to three years. The third one would be, if we can do the... uh, synthetic new chromosomes. Can we come up with a minimal chromosome? Are there things in a syn- synthetic yeast that we don't need, that we can really build it uh, for, only focused on speed of fermentation, taste, aroma, safety, and ability to outcompete or kill competing microbes? That will be another one and the biggest one would be can we come up with a synthetic metagenome you might know that the 16 chromosomes synthetic if you link them together and you make them one big mega chromosome that has already been demonstrated for example because people wanted to know why does yeast a haploid strain why does it have 16 chromosomes why not 15? Why not 10? Why not 7? Why not 1? So by linking chromosomes together, you can build a mega chromosome. So if we take from a certain vineyard all the genomes and the overlapping genes, we don't repeat, but we, we rebuild a metagenome that represents a synthetic version of all of the genomes in a specific vineyard. And you put that into one cell so basically studying ecology in a single cell so to speak the last frontier that i can mention is a synthetic yeast community if we say the top 10 saccharomyces and non-saccharomyces that play an impactful role in winemaking if we synthesize all of their genomes we don't put them in a metagenome, but we keep them separately, and we take those 10 synthetic um, yeasts and then we model them, how they interact in the laboratory, and can we extrapolate that information, how, they, how natural versions of them in the terroir of a specific vineyard will interact with one another. So first of all, if I can go through them again, synthetic full his genomes, synthetic pan-genome new chromosomes, a synthetic metagenome, and synthetic uh, his communities to mimic uh, a terroir.
1: Well, that's a really great point to end. I, I just think is the complexity that we have and then the complexity of where we're going is likely to develop lots of new products and maybe help us uh, be able to make better wines that uh, maybe will take less time or even can be done with different grapes and uh, being used use different grapes in new ways and it's all very exciting to me and a great application of new technology so Dr. Pretorius thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today
3: thank you very much and good luck
1: Yeah, and thank you, Emily. Thank you for joining me. It was a pleasure um, talking to you here instead of in class. Yeah,
2: thank you so much for having me. I learned a lot today.
1: And thanks to everybody who listens to the Talking Biotech podcast on a weekly basis as we go into our seventh or go into our eighth year. Um, We're moving along over 1.7 downloads. We really appreciate all the support. And when you can retweet or share on Facebook or in social media. It really makes a difference. So share this story about wine with your family and friends and let them know about the new technologies that are putting something better in every glass. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you next week.
4: The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Folta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience enhance production and expand science communication efforts in many ways thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast